We're going to finish up our series in Joseph. I wish I could have taken you through all the chapters, 37 through 50. We left off in chapter 42, and it's just fitting to come to chapter 50 and finish this series. To start us off, I want to ask if you would agree with me that life can look and feel a lot like the wrong side of a piece of embroidery. Would that be fair to say? Some of you are like, wow, if you only knew what I'm going through, you would just know that's it right there, that mess. Now, this just isn't any piece of embroidery, friends. This particular piece, I know the picture's not well. It's the best one on the internet that I could get. This was made by Corey Tenboom. If you don't know anything about Corey Tenboom, she was a devout Christian who was used of God to save many Jews from Nazi Holocaust during World War II. And this mess that you're looking at, I think, is an appropriate representation to the trials that we face. And the reason I say that is because trials come in all kinds of lengths and all kinds of colors, don't they? Trials have all kinds of twists and all kinds of turns, right? And there's a lot of trials that are represented in this room right now. Some have been going through the difficult trial of losing a loved one. Others are plowing through some difficult trials regarding the long-term health of family members. I know some are approaching a risky surgery. I've been praying for them, thinking of them. Some have family members that are battling aggressive cancer right now and a lot of concerns in that battle. There are some that have some work conflicts that they're currently dealing with. It's creating a lot of stress and pressure. There are some couples that are listening who are going through some marriage conflict. Some parents are dealing with the pain of a wayward child. There's a lot of trials represented in this room and listening online right now. And the trial that's probably on the forefront of many minds in this room, so let's just address the elephant in the room, right? What's church going to be like without a pastor for a little bit? That would be a fair trial. And we look at these trials that we're facing and all we see is just a mess and we're trying to make sense of what is this? What is God trying to accomplish? What does any of this mean? And we have the word of God that gives us answers to all those questions as we go through the various trials. So I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 50 where we're going to see some answers to those kinds of questions. Genesis chapter 50, we're going to take what I said, a final look at Joseph's life. If you've been listening online, joining us in person during this series, we have clearly observed that Joseph's life was a life that was full of trials. That's an understatement, right? Full of trials. 
But we've also looked at Joseph's life and we've seen he's had a life that's full of triumphs just as well. There's valleys and there's peaks throughout his life story. And in the midst of the chaos and the messiness of Joseph's life, we have an example of a man of great faith. A man who completely depended upon God through each of his trials. And he is a great example for you, church, and for me as an individual on how to handle trials biblically. So we're in Genesis chapter 50. We're beginning this morning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to them. So at this particular point in time, their father Jacob had died. And clearly, you just read it with me, verse 15, these brothers are afraid, trembling, because they're certain that their brother Joseph is going to take vengeance on them. Why would they have these fears? It could be because their dad told them the stories about how it was when his brother came for him after his father died. Esau himself even told them, when dad's dead, I'm coming for you. I'm going to kill you. And so here comes Esau, and all Jacob can do is remember what he was told, and he was afraid. So these brothers had heard that story, and they're afraid, and they approach Joseph with fear and submission. And listen to what they say to him, verses 16 and 17. They sent a message to Joseph saying, hey, your father gave this command before he died? Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. They're afraid. And there's a good chance they fabricated that story, right? Jacob may not have said that. Maybe he did, but by their demeanor, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a fabricated story. And they had no reason to fear. Because this wasn't the only time they approached Joseph in fear and submission. We just studied that last week. Chapter 42, they go before Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, in fear and submission. And they were convinced he was going to kill them because he called them spies. And then Genesis chapter 45 and 46, we see how God marvelously allowed Joseph to reveal himself to his brothers. And in that beautiful moment... What did they find Joseph to be? Nothing but a kind man. Tender-hearted man. Who wept over them. He wept over his brothers. They found Joseph in that moment to be completely forgiving. He manifested his forgiveness towards them, his love for them by moving 
all of them, including his father Jacob, from where they were in Israel to Egypt during the famine. And when they got to Egypt, Joseph made sure they got the best piece of land to live on, Goshen. And for 20 years, Joseph had been taking care of all of them. And yet, verse 17, they come to him in fear and submission. And Joseph shows us how he responded to their forgiveness request again. Look at it at the end of verse 17. He wept when they spoke to him. And you may wonder, why did he weep this time? Because he was hurt. He was hurt that they didn't receive his forgiveness 20 years earlier. He was hurt that they, in somehow, some way, in their mind, was convinced that Joseph didn't love them. He was hurt that his brothers didn't trust him, that they believed that Joseph was a different guy than what he's shown us for 20 years. He's, he's going to not get mad, he'll just get even. Now that dad's dead, Joseph's going to make us pay. They were convinced of that, and that hurt Joseph, and he wept about that. And his brothers just had a real hard time of receiving free forgiveness. Look at verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Give us what we at least deserve. Don't give us grace. We can't accept free grace. Please let us be your servants. And there they are, fell down before him. You know what would have been a prime opportunity for Joseph to do at that moment? Hey, fellas, remember those dreams I told you about 93 years ago about how you would bow down before me and how you got all amped up about that? <laughs> told you so, right? And he could have done that when he was in Egypt a couple times as well. And did Joseph ever do that? No. Never once. That wasn't the kind of man he was. Instead, this is who Joseph was. Verse 19, he said, do not fear. He says, I already forgave you. I'm not keeping score, guys. And he followed up by saying, am I in the place of God? And think about Joseph's position of power at this particular point when he says this. He's the second most important man on earth in that moment. And what does he recognize? His proper place in relation to the sovereign God. Am I am in the place of God? He knew fully that vengeance is the Lord. He will repay and so with his brothers bowed before him, I can just picture Joseph either, I'm not going to do this, but I thought it would be cool, sit on the floor, maybe join them. Maybe he pulled up a chair, I don't know. But I can just picture here, in this moment, for I, am I in the place of God, let me tell you what God has done these past years of my life. He goes into one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. 
And he proceeds to tell his brothers, Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. Brothers, you hated me because I gave a bad report of you to our father. You hated me because I was the most loved by our father and I had a special coat to show for that. You hated me because I told you dreams about how you would one day bow before me. You hated me, brother, so much you plotted to kill me. And Reuben, I praise God that you were used of him to stop your brother's premeditated plan. But fellas, you stripped me of my coat. You cast me into an empty well instead. And all of a sudden, a company of Ishmaelites were traveling by. They were en route to sell their goods to Egypt. And Judah, you led my brothers to betray me, to sell me into slavery. And right then, right there, my whole world as a 17-year-old daddy's boy was ripped violently right out from underneath me. Brothers, that was one of the most inhumane acts you could have ever done. You meant evil against me. And that evil led to me being sold again to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard. And Potiphar was a prosperous and a prominent man in Egypt. It's just crazy. I went from the caravan to a castle. Who would have ever thought that? And in Potiphar's house, I was able to meet and I was able to interact with Egyptian royalty and I became very, very familiar in all their customs and that knowledge, that information during that time was absolutely key for me and the role that God had in store for me. And there, God made me a successful man and people liked me. But unfortunately, so did Potiphar's wife. She wanted me, and she grabbed me by my coat. But guys, I refuse to sin against my master, and more importantly, I refuse to sin against God. And so I squirmed out of that coat. I left it in her arms. I fled the scene. And she screamed in anger. Boy, if you could have heard it, she would have killed me if she could. And she fabricated a story against me and Potiphar threw me into prison. And when I hit rock bottom there in that prison, I kept asking God, why is this happening? I don't get it. I was faithful to my father. He gave me a special coat. That coat was stripped off of me violently. I was thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. Then I'm faithful to my master. I'm given a new coat. And then I'm stripped of that coat, lied about, and now I'm thrown in this prison. Why, God, why? And then all my questions 
deep inside, I could tell there's something supernatural that was going on. And the reason I say that, brothers, is because the Lord was with me. Whatever I did, the Lord made it succeed. It was wild. I was in prison as a prisoner, yet I was running the prison. And in drops two of Pharaoh's servants. And their first night, they had a terrible night's rest. They had sad looks on their faces in the morning. I asked them what's wrong. They told me that they each had a dream and they wanted to know what the dreams meant. And I said quickly to them, well, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me. And so they told me the dreams and boys, God enabled me to interpret their dreams. I said, Butler... You're going to be restored to your position. Baker, I'm sorry, buddy. Bad news. You're going to be hanged. And guys, guess what? That's exactly what happened, just as God revealed it to me. And the butler, before he left jail, I begged him, remember me when it's well with you. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. I thought it was a simple request, fellas. Nothing big. That's just it. A little favor. And the chief cupbearer did not remember me, but forgot me. And I remained forgotten for two whole years. But God had not forgotten me. God had not abandoned me. Pharaoh had a dream that night. And he wanted an interpreter for his dream. And all of a sudden, light bulb went off and the cupbearer said, hey, I remember there was a guy in the prison that could interpret dreams and everything he said to me happened just like he said it would happen. You restored me to my position and Pharaoh summoned for me and brought me before him and asked if I could interpret his dream and I said it's not in me God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer and God in that moment brothers he used me to point out to Pharaoh that there's going to be seven years of plenty coming and those seven years of plenty are going to be followed by seven years of famine and I told Pharaoh in that moment you need a discerning and wise man to make sure that you store enough food during the years of plenty so that you'll have enough food to eat during the years of famine and Pharaoh looked at me and he said you shall be over my house and over all my people and they shall be ordered by you as you command and only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Brothers, it was crazy. I went from that prison to the palace. So you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see, my brothers, if you would not have sold me into slavery, then I would have not been brought to Egypt. And if Potiphar had not bought me, 
that I would not have gained the experience that I needed to be Pharaoh's right-hand man right now. And if I had not been thrown into prison by Potiphar, I would not have been there to interpret the butler's dream. And if that had not happened, then I would not have been summoned by Pharaoh to be used of God to interpret his dream. Fellas, God has overseen every single detail of my life those 13 years and even onward. I went from the bottom of the pit that you brothers meant evil against me and threw me in and I was raised and brought by God to a divinely appointed position. God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Brothers, remember God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. It was God. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones just like I promised you 20 years ago. Can you imagine that's what it kind of probably went down as? They approached him in fear and trembling. They bowed before him. He either sat on the floor or pulled up a chair and went through that whole timeline of God's providence. I envision it to go that way. And then notice what it says, verse 21. At the very end, after all that, Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And we review all this this morning and we ask ourselves, how in the world could Joseph respond to this evil that these 10 brothers did to him with mercy and kindness and grace and not with vengeance and bitterness and hatred? How could he do that? How could he respond in such a way? The answer to that is because Joseph was a man who had a personal relationship with the God of the universe through faith. Joseph was a man who knew that his God was sovereign over all. He knew that his God is good in everything he does, amen? And his response here in verse 20, friends, introduces us to God's providence. A lot of great theologians write on this subject. It's a fascinating subject. It's a helpful subject to grasp as well as we can with our finite minds. I think MacArthur explains God's providence so well. Listen to what he wrote. He goes, God works his own ends. No matter what the intention of people be, it good or bad, God will bring about his own ultimate end. And what God means to happen will ultimately happen. God coordinates and organizes all the apparently independent activities and thoughts and ideas and movements of people and he pulls them all together and makes them harmonize with one another to effect his ultimate ends. God is using all of it ultimately for his glory and our good. And so Joseph, friends, 
he teaches us when it comes to handling trials biblically just how important it is for you as a church and for me as an individual to rest in God's providence. Rest in God's providence. But he also teaches us how important it is to rejoice in God's goodness. And we see that in his life. God is good, amen? Because he's good, that means the Lord never, ever, ever does evil. Nor does he condone evil. But he used the evil done to Joseph by his brothers to accomplish his own sovereign plan. That's what's amazing to us. Let me unpack this for you. Before the foundations of the world, our God had a sovereign plan for the world. Do you believe that? So in order to fulfill that sovereign plan for the world, our God had a plan for Israel. In order to fulfill that plan for Israel, our God had a plan for Joseph. And God used Joseph, as we have seen in this narrative, to save his entire family from dying of starvation. That's a good thing, church. With Joseph's family now saved, he moved 70 of them from Israel to Egypt. And guess what God did in a period of 430 years while they were in Egypt? Just what he promised Jacob he would do. I'm going to make you into a great nation. They arrive in Egypt as a family of 70. 430 years later, they leave Egypt with estimate of at least two million people. Does that sound like a great nation? I think God kept his promise to Jacob there, right? And God made all things work together for good to the accomplishing of his sovereign plan. Joseph's trials were for the good of his family. But they were not just for the good of his family. They were for the good of a nation. And from that nation, what do we have come from it? Prophets. And from those prophets, what do we have come from them? The word. They wrote God's words for us. But most importantly, from that nation comes Jesus Christ, friends. The Messiah, the Savior of the world from that nation comes the very one that God promised Abraham would bless all the nations of the earth the very one that God promised Jacob would bless all the nations of earth and so knowing this I believe Joseph's trials were not just for the good of his family or for the nation but they were for the good of the whole world would you agree with me church Joseph did not suffer for sin. God wasn't punishing him because of sin. He suffered so that God could ultimately save sinners through the one he promised, the Messiah, the one who would come from Israel, from Jacob. And so it was crucial 
for the good of his family, for the good of the nation, but for the good of the world, for Joseph to suffer and go through all those trials because he saved his family, which then later on delivered God's plan of a savior for the world. And when we think of the Messiah, our mind should go well beyond Joseph and we should be thinking, whoa, there was another man on this earth who went through far greater evil. And that was Jesus Messiah. And all the evil that Jesus Messiah went through on this earth produced the greatest good that man could ever think or imagine or ask. And that's eternal deliverance from death through the blood of Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I love how Peter puts that. He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up and he's exalted at the right hand of God and has made him both Lord and Christ. So all that Joseph went through was for our good. That's what we're concluding, friends. Because it gave us Christ. And so as we come to Genesis, the closing of Joseph's last words, draw your attention to verses 22 25. Follow along as I read where it says Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children, also a maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, our dad. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And so in his last words, friends, Joseph prepared his family that was right there listening for a life full of trials and afflictions that they would experience under a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And two times in his closing words, look at those again. I want you to see them. He assured his family, God will come to your rescue. Just as he promised Abraham, our father, 300 years earlier. It's all coming to be just as God said it would be, boys. And God will come to your rescue and until then he says in essence to them wait for God's deliverance and in anticipation of God's deliverance Joseph in great faith said verse 25 you shall carry up my bones from here these are words from a man who knew what he believed and he knew where he belonged I don't belong in Egypt I belong in the land that God has promised and verse 26, Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And at this time, his body was not buried, friends. It was laid to rest in what verse 26 says is a coffin. A box that stood above the ground. 
a box that was awaiting a moving day to the promised land. And I just imagine that that coffin was a visual reminder to his family, the people of Israel during those 430 years of bondage when they're getting whipped across the back and oppressed by a king that didn't know Egypt. They kept looking at that coffin and kept thinking to themselves, Joseph promised us there's coming a day when God will deliver us. God will deliver us. And after 430 years, that day came. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him in the Exodus. And they carried those bones through all the wanderings in the wilderness. How many years did they wander in the wilderness, church? 40 years hauling these bones. And you want to know what? Those bones, what did they encourage these people as they endured trials in the wilderness? They encouraged them, rest in God's providence, rejoice in God's goodness, wait for God's deliverance. God brought us out. God will bring us in, just as he promised. And he did that. You read Joshua, and it says he buried the bones of Joseph at Shechem in the promised land. And so, my friends, even though trials of life do look and feel a lot like this side of a piece of embroidery, you and I can be assured that our sovereign God, he knows the pattern. Right? We can be assured he's going to make all things, including our trials, he's going to work them all together for good to the accomplishing of his masterpiece. With regards to what Corey Ten Boom made here, she said, we can only see the wrong side. One day, we'll see the other side, the right side. And in that day, friends, when we're able to see the right side, we will see the beauty of God's providence his goodness, his love. When he rewards us and we receive from him the crown of life that's promised to every single individual that remains steadfast under trial. I appreciate James Montgomery Boyce's perspective. He said, as long as the cross stands in history, No one who knows its meaning will be able to pronounce a limitation on God's providence. Christians will never say, I'm aware that most things in life are controlled by God and are good for me in some way, though I might not always see how. Mm -mm. No. They will say, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Church, unlike Israel, you and I, we don't have a box of bones that we can run to and we can look at when we're going through various trials and receive this, hang in there, the end is near, persevere. We don't have that. And we don't need it. You know why? 
because we have someone even better. We have an empty tomb, which means we, church, have a risen Savior. And our Savior, our Deliverer, said to us, his followers, right before he left, some words that we need to take to heart, especially in the various trials we're facing right now. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Listen to this promise. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And I love this promise. I will not leave you as orphans. Say it with me, church. Jesus says to us, I will come to you. He said these words to his followers right before he left and his last words to us. He commanded us, until then, go make disciples. And while you're making disciples, I promise you, read this promise of the Lord to you. Read it with me. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so I've been praying that my last words this morning to my dearly loved church family, I'm praying that these words come from God's word and they prepare you for the various trials and difficulties that you will face, not only in your own life, but also in your church as you move forward. Keep looking to our risen Savior, friends. Wait for his deliverance. And while you're waiting, be sure to rest in God's providence and rejoice in God's goodness. He will come to your rescue, church, just as he promised. Do you believe that? Father, thank you for giving us this hope. And I pray we would cling to this hope today and forevermore. Lord, help us to wait and to wait patiently, to be steadfast in our trials. Help us to depend on you, to rest in your providence, to rejoice in your goodness. Help us to be faithful to the commission you've given us to make disciples. May we never lose sight of our risen Savior and his commission to the church to make disciples. Help this church, your church, which you purchased through your son's blood. Help them fulfill this ministry. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.